What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Podmosh, and happy holidays. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving and uh, kind of preparing for Christmas. Today's episode, we have Chris Alberson. He is a financial advisor and the president of Stewardship Wealth Management in Fort Worth. Great conversation. Um, we had a lot of t- discussions about mutual funds, uh, what it's like to have a work-optional lifestyle, which has been replaced with pushing for retirement. So instead of pushing for retirement, we are now calling it a work-optional lifestyle. And I was really, I really want to have him on to kind of bridge the gap on what could happen, you know, 40 years from now for people who are in their 20s, uh, you know, to really be successful and to have that work optional lifestyle. You honestly, like we honestly have to start when we're you know, 15, 16, 17, 20, 25, 26, uh, 30, you know, the earlier, the, the better that you can start because of a concept called compound interest. And we'll get into a little bit about that later on. So I had a great conversation. I uh, hope you guys enjoy. Thanks. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Tell me what you do, where you came from, how you got here, blah, 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 you know. Sure, <laughs> sure. No, I'm a, I'm a financial advisor in the financial industry. Um, I'm the president of Stewardship Wealth Management based in Fort Worth. We offer comprehensive, um, holistic financial planning for individuals, families, businesses across the state of Texas. Okay, explain that because that's a little different than most financial places. For sure. The holistic approach. Yeah, so there's a difference between... Um, a broker and a fiduciary, right? And we're actually a fiduciary firm, which just basically means um, we take that holistic approach. We want to start with a foundation, which is usually around a financial plan. Um, and then around that financial plan, that's when investment strategies actually get introduced, you know, with a, with a broker. And I think there is a common misconception with a lot of people when they walk in and they meet with a financial advisor. I think it they have this this thought process through their mind, like the old days where I walk in and I've got a stockbroker and this guy's going to do basically nothing, but just help me make money. Right. Mm-hmm. He's, he's going to pick some stocks. He's going to pick some mutual funds. He's going to, you know, do this for me, make me some money. But ultimately our, our industry is starting to change more towards that holistic approach. Why? I think it's value. You know, I, I think that, we live in the information age now, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we, people have information at their fingertips, you know, I mean, you can literally watch a YouTube video and find stocks that Mm -hmm. people are recommending and and mutual funds, this, that, and the other. So I think in my industry, we've got to start adding value to people in different ways. And when we talk about the holistic approach, that's usually diving into the financial planning aspect and then really the wealth management piece, the the building of the portfolios, mutual funds, stocks, bonds, whatever it might be, it's kind of a side piece. So if, if you're taking a holistic approach on somebody who walks in the door, mm-hmm. um, kind of walk me through those steps on, say, a person comes in, they make $45,000 a year. Um, they have you know, maybe $15,000 worth in student loan debt. Kind of how, sure. how do you approach that type of scenario? Well, we are, you know, I don't know if you want me to go into this or not, but we're actually um, an endorsed local provider by Dave Ramsey. Yeah, do it. So, yeah. So, I mean, we're, we are, we take that Dave Ramsey philosophy when somebody comes through our door and, and part of, um, you know, our 
commitment to the Dave Ramsey program is to make sure that we help whoever walks through our doors. So if they've got $15,000 to their name, they've got $150 to their name, they've got $50 million to their name, we're going to help everybody. Um, but part of that financial planning and part of that holistic approach is to make sure that, you know, if they're not in a place to be investing, whether they do have a lot of debt to their name and that maybe that's not, um, where they need to be mm-hmm. investing money into Roth IRAs or, or retirement plans at the time. It's our job to help them get to a point where they can, Okay, you know, in, in the most expedited way yeah. possible, if you will. So, um, before we jump too into too far into the, uh, details on sure. theory and all that stuff, uh, tell me a little bit more about yourself. You were originally pre-med, right? I was originally. So tell me, walk, walk me through that process. Yeah. So no, I, you know, we, <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty unique individual. So I am in the millennial generation. Mm -hmm. I'm 33 years old. Um, my wife and I got married. We're from a very small town out in West Texas. We got married at a very early age and we actually ended up having three children by the time I was 22 years old. (laughs) So, um, when we were going through college, I, I realized very quickly, um, that I needed to, um, make a career change. You know, I was going pre-medicine. That was my, my thoughts, my goals, but I knew that I didn't have 10 years, you know, to, to get out of school. And I, I knew that's pretty much what it was going to take me eight to 10 years. And I was like, there's no way I've got three kids. I've got a family to provide for. So switched over to business. Um, and it ended up getting on with JP Morgan. I think when I was 21 years old, 22 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood, um, got into banking originally. And in banking, you have different paths, right? I mean, you, you start to kind of work your way into a certain role and I pretty much got to do it all, you know, from, from the retail side, from being a teller all the way to being a small business banker, to a mortgage broker, to Mm. customer service, to private wealth banking. I basically did every single role throughout three or four years, um, with the bank and ended up moving from JP Morgan to BBVA Compass. Um, that's a bank locally here mm-hmm. in yeah. Texas. And I think they're pretty much in the Sun Belt, so Southern United States. Um, but ended up going over to BBVA, ended up progressing into a financial advisor role. Um, and the rest is history. You know, I, I, I've started loving the role. I mean, I kind of fell into it, to be mm-hmm. honest. That's where I'm going with this, is yeah. I kind of fell into the role. Um, but I noticed that I can make a significant difference in people's lives mm. more that more so in my opinion than those other roles mm. that I had experienced inside the bank. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so you have a master's in what? Uh, business administration. Okay. MBA at, at TCU. At TCU. Yeah. Okay. So how long have you been doing financial advising? Oh man. Um, well licensed at a little over 10 years. Um, where I had my licenses, but I was kind of in an administrative, Mm -hmm. um, role, um, before that. So about 13 years total at this point. What was kind of the thing that, uh, hooked you in this business? You know, I, I think mainly it was me being able to help people and, and get them onto the path where they needed to be. You know, I, what I noticed is it's, it's kind of like a doctor. You know, that's what I was going to school to be. And my grandfather's a doctor and I really wanted to help people. That's what Mm -hmm. I wanted to do. And I noticed pretty early on when I started, you know, fully integrated into this role um, that I was able to do that. And I was able to diagnose people's problems and really be a problem solver and and get them to where they needed to be. 
Because that's or typ- help them. That's typically that's that's not really normal. That's kind of one of my favorite phrases. That's not normal, um, which in a cool way because for sure people aren't going to be jumping into financial planning or financial advising typically as a ways to, as a means to help people. Um, they, most people that I've talked to uh, in this field are very like, yeah, I like the money game. I mean, it's cool, kind of you know moving the numbers around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you you really got into it to because you can affect people's overall quality of life for sure. For sure. You know, and that's, I I think that the money piece, you know, is kind of a byproduct of what I do. You know, it's for, from a personal standpoint, the money that we make, you know, I think there is a common misconception out there too, that financial advisors are overpaid. I can tell you that's not the case. (laughs) Uh, But I I will say, I will say, you know, it's a byproduct. You know, I, I truly believe that this industry um, you can, you can really do some good things. Practically explain what good can you do? So many different things, but from, um, you know, like I was telling you that from a diagnostic standpoint, being a problem solver, you know, I mean, there's so many aspects of the financial realm from a personal aspect, family aspect, business aspect that people sometimes overlook. You know, I I think that people just invest money Mm -hmm. because they're told that they need to invest money. Right. I mean, how many, how many people, I know a ton of people when they come in, usually I'm like, okay, you know, you're, you've been contributing to your 401k at work. Why? Ask them that question. Like, why, why, why do you, why are you contributing to your 401k? Well, I want to retire one day. Okay. Well, I mean, do you have a plan? I mean, when do you want to retire? You know, when, when do you, I mean, how much do you think you need? What, what income would you like to see at retirement? And most people have no idea. Right. And that's, I, I think that that's a byproduct of the overall United States education system. Mm-hmm. Truthfully, I mean, we can get in the weeds all, all, all on that if you Whatever, wanted to. Yeah. But, but truthfully, I mean, I, I think that our, our youth are not taught from a very early age about finances. Well, that's been my frustration because um, in high school, I, I took the Dave Ramsey course. <clears throat> my parents kind of really taught me how to budget well, how to save my money. So. I mean, I could save, you know, 800 bucks on a $25 a week salary, you know, cause I, I would mow with 10 acres for like 25 bucks a week. And I'd save that to buy a camera, you know, for like six or 700 bucks. And it took me like two years, but I saved that money. <laughs> so it's just sure. because my parents taught me how to budget. And, um, as I got into the work field and the workplace, nobody really knew how to do that. That was my age. Mm-hmm. Um, even people who are older than me, um, they could be making twice what I was making, but somehow I was saving more and I was able to do, to do more with it. And I was, I didn't really get that. And then I started diving into mutual funds and investing. And when I say mutual funds, people are just like, oh, that's just a uh, high risk stock that you don't really want to get into, you know, sure. because you're just kind of throwing your money away. It's like gambling. That's, that's the typical response I got mm-hmm. from, from my peers, uh, that mutual funds were, it's like a, like gambling. You're just throwing your money away. Explain that, explain where this lapse in, uh, information is with our generation or this my generation. For sure. You know? Yeah. I, I think that there is a. A uh, like you said, I think there's a common misconception there. You know, with with mutual funds, the main point, the reason that mutual funds exist, is because of the Great Depression. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, the the main reason that and look, investment companies are smart, right? I mean, they know what they're doing. But during the Great Depression, you had a bunch of people investing in individual stocks, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's really what hurt. Uh, the U.S. economy at that time is you just really had U.S. stocks and you really had people investing that shouldn't have been investing at the time. So, so break that down a little more, a little sure. further. So sure. Somebody who, d- who really doesn't know anything like me, explain that process, why the 
the, the Great Depression really was affected by individual stocks. Sure. So you just had a lack of liquidity. So you essentially had individuals and it was a money supply issue. That was a big deal. But you had people that were investing in individual stocks. And it's almost you've heard the term run on the banks. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, you can have that same type of philosophy inside the, the U.S. securities market as well. Right. Or you basically have everybody hitting the panic button at the same time saying, hey, get me out, sell me out, sell me out, sell me out. Because they're afraid it's going to tank and lose all the money. Correct. You had a bunch of individual investors that were uneducated, that just didn't know how the stock market worked. Right. Mm -hmm. And you had a bunch of people hitting that sell button at the same time. And then it caused a lack of liquidity within the banking system as well, where you had an, an actual run at the banks where people were trying to pull money out of banks. And then banks actually at the time did not have the reserve requirements that they do now. Mm. So it was basically a lack of liquidity event and it caused a major, major issue. So how does a mutual fund fix that? So a mutual fund basically is a basket full of these individual stocks. Mm -hmm. So instead of me going out and let's say, uh, you know, I know that the hot stock right now, you're looking at the of the world. I might have bought a little bit into that recently. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little bit, right? I mean, that's that's the stock that everybody's been been Mm -hmm. uh, been buying up. It seems like, but what a mutual fund does is is it's basically a basket full of those individual stocks. So it's designed to give you diversity. So, for instance, not saying this would happen at all, but I'm just using this as a hypothetical. Let's say I had all my hundred dollars with one day we're just to go belly up for whatever reason. And I lose my hundred dollars. Right. But if I have a basket full of stocks and I've got my hundred dollars in a hundred different stocks inside that mutual fund and then goes belly up, mm-hmm. does that really hurt me as much? And there's a pretty, no, there's a, a, a time frame too, for how much, how many mutual funds are in each, uh, longevity time frame. Does that make sense? So like a 10 year mutual fund has like 600 and then as it gets lower, it kind of, gets lower, right? Yeah. Some of those target date funds can have that. I think where you really will see that is each mutual fund has an objective. You know, think of it like a pizza almost, right? So like I, I, uh, I call into Domino's and I order a pepperoni pizza, right? All of my toppings on that pizza are going to be pepperoni. And think of that as one mutual fund, right? All of those toppings being in individual stock in a company. Then I call into Domino's and I'm like, hey, you know what? I want a hamburger pizza. And they send me a hamburger pizza. And each of those hamburger toppings are an individual stock. With mutual funds, I can have different toppings, right? Mm-hmm. In, or different stocks inside of that mutual fund. Each of them are going to be their own objective. So I may have a growth mutual fund that is um, designed to have just growth-oriented stocks inside of it. Or I might have what's called a mid-cap mutual fund mm-hmm. where all of the stocks inside of that mutual fund are mid-size. Mid-cap means mid-size, mid-capitalization companies inside of there. Or I might have a small-cap company or mm-hmm. a small-cap mutual fund where all of the Which is part of that portfolio that Dave Ramsey talks about. The small, mid, large, and international are the four categories, right? Yep. Growth, growth and income, aggressive growth, and international. Yeah. Those are our four. But what the small will usually do, so just like anything in, in life, you know, obviously if I'm investing in something smaller, you know, it's usually more risk, mm-hmm. right? So if I have a small cap mutual fund, all of those companies are going to be smaller, smaller companies, right? So normally those fund managers, and you actually have a manager that's managing that mutual fund, 
they're managing this mutual fund for you. And if it's a small cap, there's more risk. So they might have more like 600 stocks in that one, mm-hmm. just for more diversification to kind of lower some of that risk for the clients. Mm-hmm. But if I have a, a large cap blue chip mutual fund, I may only have 100 stocks in there because they're much larger companies. They're considered yeah. a little bit safer than the small caps. So how do we bridge that gap with our generation, with the younger generation to kind of like get their heads around this idea that you're not gambling and you're actually like you're throwing away hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars by not investing, you know, today. For sure. You know, if you wait one year, the the compound interest concept exponentially increases your rewards or decreases if you don't invest. Am I right? No, you're you're 100% right. And I think that the the millennial generation is probably the hardest headed, if you will. And I'm a millennial, so don't want to hear anybody get mad out there. Uh, but par- probably the hardest headed when it comes to actually investing in the market. And I, I think that there's multiple reasons for that. Okay. You know, I, I think- Reason one, go. Reason one. So reason one, I think, is from an economic standpoint. You know, there's there's a lot of research that's been done, but the the job labor mobility market, meaning how many times you can basically jump from job to job, right? And try to increase your salary by mm-hmm. doing so has actually slowed down. And it started slowing down in the year really? in the year 2000. So the older millennials, and depending on who you listen to, I think it starts around 1981 or 1982, they were just entering that their labor market, the labor market hmm. at that time, and their mobility slowed down, and it's consistently gone down. So, why is mobility so important? Well, it, it affects wages, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's the next piece is wages have been fairly stagnant. Mm. So, you've, there's two headwinds, right? I mean, you've got the issue of I can't necessarily just jump around like my parents used to, mm-hmm. you know, and then I also really can't expect a significant pay increase every year. So what that does is it puts pressure. All of our expenses are going up every single year, Mm -hmm. but our wages aren't necessarily keeping up with those expenses. So it causes millennials, a significant majority, they just don't have the money to be throwing back into the market. The second big piece to me is 2008, September Mm -hmm. 11th. You know, you had the tech crash. I mean, maybe some of the the older millennials saw that as well, but we saw our parents go through it. You know, we, we saw, you know, this is one of the reasons that I got into the financial industry or I started making that switch when I was younger. I remember my father worked for a, a pretty big company and this is right after September 11th and he got some bad advice from a financial advisor. Mm. That'll be the next piece, by the way. <laughs> um, but but got some bad advice and, and ended up not selling a, a stock that he should have. And it was his company that he worked for and he lost a ton of money. Mm. And it was due to market losses, either from September 11th or from 2008. And I think millennials saw that. So I think there's a general lack of distrust just in general mm. with, with the overall market. I, I think that there's a general distrust in financial advisors because mm-hmm. of that reason. Yeah. Um, and then I also believe, you know, with with millennials, that there's also a lifestyle difference from our parents to our generation. You know, we with millennials, we've stopped using the term retirement, stopped altogether. We call it a work optional lifestyle now. W O L. Okay. And what we're trying to do is get them to understand. 
I'm a millennial. I love my job and I'll probably work for the rest of my life. That's what millennials strive for. They strive not for a job, but a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, would you agree with that? So we've tried to start switching the narrative of, hey, you know, we're not going to just work our entire lives till we're 65 years old and then call it a day. Yeah. You know, that's what our parents did. That's what our parents' parents did. Now we've got to start planning for a work optional lifestyle. Meaning if I wake up on a Monday and I don't want to go to work, guess what? I don't have to. (laughs) That's where we want to be. Hmm. And, And I think that a lot of millennials from an investment standpoint are just like, eh, I don't want to invest because, you know, I don't necessarily just want that retirement piece. It's almost taboo in a way. Maybe subconsciously. I think, you know, I I think it's, it's more of just, um, you know, the mindset of knowing that they have to work for the man for a long period of time, you know, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, you Hmm. know, but I think there is a a mindset of, I want to build something. I I want to, I want this on my terms. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I think it gets a bad rap, but I think that's actually changing a lot of our economic factors in the United States. And, I think that uh, the the retirement piece, you know, can be a little taboo with them. But that, that I, makes I, sense though, because when you when you trade the word uh, retirement with work optional, it's like, oh, wait let's a do minute, do mutual funds? <laughs> yeah. So you're telling me that I can have a work optional lifestyle yeah. at fifty? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Some people at forty, depending on what you want to sacrifice. Exactly. You and, know, I was reading an article. Sorry to interrupt you, no, but good. I was reading an article the other day. I think it was on CNBC, and there was a 37 year old that retired. Or, yeah had the work optional lifestyle, yeah. quote unquote. So. And that's another thing. Like you can get to a point where you're making say $40,000 in work optional income. Yep. Say you retire at age 37 or 38 with $40,000 in retirement income, quote unquote retire. It's not, that's not a whole lot um, to be able to live off of. Like if you have, especially have a big family or whatever, mm-hmm. but it does give you the option to be able to pursue other interests where you could start a whole new business whenever you don't have to worry about a $40,000 income stream. Exactly. That's kind of big. And I've seen, there was a uh, quite a few articles where these millennials are uh, retiring quote unquote with only like $30,000 of income a year, but they're 30 years old. And they're traveling the world, you know, sure. doing whatever they want. And then they come back and they say, okay, now I have for the next 40, 50 years, I have $30,000 of in, of this income stream. And now I can go work a Starbucks job and add another 30 if I want to. For so now sure. Starbucks is paying you $60,000 a year and you just, you just did and it that cool. way. You know, and that's, that's huge. That's a whole, we're trying, you know, I'm sure there's other firms doing the same thing, but we're trying to change the narrative mm-hmm. because you can see how that shifts people's minds away from, I've got to work till I'm 65 and then in 65, I can retire. No, I mean, we can have a work optional lifestyle whenever you want. We'll tell you exactly what you have to do, how much you need to be investing, you know, how much you need to be contributing on a monthly basis um, to get there. And but, um, the amount is, I think, kind of turns a lot of millennials off mm-hmm. um, by giving up four Starbucks drinks a month and putting that so, so 20 bucks a month mm-hmm. that could get you a, a significant amount in 60 years for sure 20 bucks a month and I think that's where people kind of uh, at least my generation or our, our generation they kind of lose it right there because they're thinking they have to add you know $600 a month $500 a month to be able to have a really nice uh, nest egg, which granted, the more you invest, the more compound interest is going to occur, the more you're going to have a retirement. I get that. But starting at $20 a month, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. or $30 a month or whatever, um, is a really good way to start. 
Absolutely. You know, something is better than nothing. That's what we tell people all the time. You know, if, if they've got 20 bucks a month and that's all they can contribute, that's what we want to go with. You know, something is better than nothing because of that compound interest effect that you were talking about. Can you, uh, do you have a, can you run I a can. scenario real quick? Sure. Just what, what, so let's say $50 a month would do for somebody uh, starting at the age of 23. And then if they say they want to retire at the age of 67, um, extremely high risk at the beginning for the first few you know, sure. decades. Well, what I'll do is I'll just run it on the S&P 500. Okay. You know, the, the average Benchmark. return. Yeah. Let's see here. So if we had, <clears throat> so let's say that we started with a hundred bucks and for a 22 year old, we've got that basically give us 43 years to save until we're 65 years old, right? We'll mm -hmm. just call it at 65 with a 7% average annual return, which is basically what the S&P 500 has done since about 19, late 1920s. So we'll go all the way back there. And then we threw in 20 bucks a month. We would have roughly $63,532 at the end of four, 43 years. Okay. So now let's, um, let's push the limits because the, you, we can add a whole lot of risk at, at that age. For sure. So let's put a whole lot of risk. Uh, do you have tickers where you can look up to see what you... Sure. TEFQX. And throw that in there. Put like maybe the majority of that in there. You can, I don't know, throw some smaller mid if you want. But TEFQX is a, a technology mutual fund uh, that I invest in. It's pretty high risk, but the returns are pretty crazy. Uh, and I'm for right now, I'm investing a whole lot in that point because I have a lot of years to be able to balance out any diminishing, uh, any, any losses because it's tech, you know, for sure. Yeah. So let's call this roughly 18, 19% a year on yeah. average. <laughs> so that's pretty good, Caleb. <laughs> okay. So starting about 100 bucks, we've got 43 years to save. We throw in $20 a month and we're averaging 19% a year. Don't know exactly, you know, how sustainable that is, but we'll call it at 19% a year. You're now sitting at $2.6 million at the end of 43 <laughs> years. <laughs> okay, so let's break this yeah. down a little further. Yeah. Um, talk about managing risk and return. For sure. Because this is, this is a very high risk mutual fund. Um, explain why it's high risk. Um, as much as you can with what you, the information you have. Yeah. So, so again, just, just very high level, you know, there's going to be some mutual funds that are going to be higher risk than others. And mm -hmm. it's typically just going to be based on the mutual funds that are inside, or I'm sorry, the individual stocks that are inside the mutual fund. Um, so this one in particular, the one that's averaging 19% a year almost over the past 10 years. And the 10 year mark is pretty big too, because this is a 19% return, including the 2008 crash. Um, not right. quite, not Almost. quite. Yeah. So we're going back to 2010, but I think it does have a 15 year. Cause I started, yeah. Cause I looked at that when I first got into this, I looked at, it was covered. It was having a 13% return, um, during the 2006 or 2008 crash. Yeah. So 15 year average return is 16.09 and that's directly from Morningstar. Which is reports. amazing. Yeah. It's pretty good. Um, but yeah, I mean, this one's going to be more, so like anything in life, right? I mean, my risk should always match my return always. Right. And that's something as an investor you need to consider is number one, you need to figure out how much can you stomach, how much can mm -hmm. you handle from a risk standpoint. 
And then you need to make sure that, hey, if I am taking a lot of risk in something, that my return is worth it. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you how many times we do have clients come in and I do an analysis on their portfolio and they're on a scale zero to 10, zero being the most conservative, 10 being the most aggressive. They're taking a nine risk mm. and they're getting like a four return, right? Mm. I mean, so you need to make sure as an investor that your risk is matching your return. But how to measure it, there's a lot of companies, I know Fidelity does it, Schwab does it, um, you know, they'll basically tell you how much risk you're taking. In, you know, in a mutual fund. So that's helpful. Yeah. Um, but really it's all going to come down to the individual stocks inside of the mutual fund that you're investing in. If they're smaller companies, normally the upside is much greater, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if I'm investing in small companies that have the potential to be the next Amazon, be the next Tesla, yeah. be the next, you know, Apple, you can ride that wave mm -hmm. as they get bigger and you can make some good money. But the flip side is also true. Yeah. You know, small companies <laughs> go belly up all the time. So you know, that's why you want to invest in a mutual fund, in my opinion, is you've got that diversification. You know, if, if you've got 300 stocks, you know, inside that one technology small cap mutual fund and half of them go belly up, it mm -hmm. really doesn't hurt you a whole lot. Yeah. You know, compared Which the, to the, the risk of or the chances of, it, of half of all those mutual funds going belly up are kind of slim. For sure. I mean, honestly, yeah, I mean, especially in the technology boom right now. Yes, I would. I would totally agree. Um with that. But, you know, on the flip side of that, if I'm more of a, um, you know, conservative investor and I, I, I kind of come to that conclusion and I highly recommend working with a financial advisor because they can help you come to that conclusion yeah. and get you there. Um, but if I'm more of a conservative investor, then I may want to invest in large blue chip stock. I mean, those and what's, guys, a, what's a blue chip stock? Blue chip is just a very large company, okay. massive, huge company. Okay. Um, but these are going to be companies that just don't fluctuate as much. Mm -hmm. You know, these are going to be companies that, you know, if, if I buy it for 50 bucks a share, it's probably going to go from 51 to 50, you know, 50 to 51, 50 to 52, 50 yeah. to 48. Not going to have a lot of fluctuation in them. Yeah. But I can still average a pretty good return with them. So um, with my strategy that I'm kind of, I've, because I'm so young, I can have the ability to have a high risk uh, portfolio right now because I have another 40 years, honestly, uh, to invest. For sure. Um, what's your typical strategy for young people versus older people and how do you Great question. Uh, push that? Great question. So this is actually something with the millennial generation that we have to try and break through. You know, and, and I highly recommend Dave Ramsey's got some great articles on his website about this, on how what your strategy should be when it comes to this. Um, but ultimately, uh, the, the rule of thumb is the younger you are, the more aggressive you want to be, especially if my goal is greater than 15 years out. You know, 20 bucks makes turns into 2.1 million. That's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if I'm 20 years old and I'm, I'm shooting for a work optional lifestyle at 55 or 60, right? I mean, I've got a long mm -hmm. way to go. So typically you want to make sure that if I'm younger, I can afford to take more risk because I have time to make up any market losses that we see. Yeah. Right. I mean, COVID was rough. I mean, March was March was tough. That was one of the the fastest market drops we've ever seen in U.S. history. I mean, peak to trough. Yeah, more. I want to know more about that. Like, what? How did it affect the markets? Like, what did you do as a financial advisor? So our job is, you know, I, I tell people this all the time. I should have got a minor in psychology because that's about half of my job. <laughs> um, for seriously. Um, yeah, but ultimately when, when March hit, when the pandemic hit, 
we were starting to kind of get some information that this could be a lot worse than what we were all thinking it was going to be. But, you know, we the news and everything else at the time, it hadn't hit U.S. shores. We didn't know necessarily know the impact. And I don't think anybody did at mm-hmm. the time. Um, but mainly when clients would start calling in early on in the pandemic, it was just like, hey, we've got to hold on. Right. I mean, we've just got, just got to wait this out. Let's see how it how everything, you know, shakes out here about mid midterm during the pandemic. Um, <laughs> that's when the market had gone down about 38% mm-hmm. in about 45 days. Put that in uh, perspective. Yeah. So, you know, let's say that I've got a hundred thousand dollars, you know, and I'm just in the S and P 500 index fund. Cause you can literally just track yeah. the S and P, right? That's what I'll, that's the benchmark I'll use. I'm basically now down to about 62,000 in 45 days. 100,000 to 62,000. So it's the modern day run of the banks. Correct. That's what people were calling. Absolutely. They're wanting to sell, right? You know, and and our job and what we've seen and what history shows us, look, nobody has a crystal ball. No, Mm -hmm. there's not a financial advisor out there that has a crystal ball. Nobody does. But what we do know is history, Mm -hmm. right? And we can look back on certain events in history and try to not necessarily predict, but at least use them Mm -hmm. as a tool to figure out you know, how we need to proceed. And our philosophy is very fundamental, which basically just means, hey, we're going to ride out the wave. We've built your portfolio Mm -hmm. to take the beatings. It's like an airplane, right? We're flying. Airplanes are built to take the turbulence. They are literally built for that. So it's the same thing with portfolios. And that's a conversation that we would have over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm proud to say, I mean, we've we've got, you know, six, seven hundred clients across the state of Texas. And, you know, we we only had one that sold out during that entire deal. Mm, wow. But I think this year is a great example of why you don't sell out. Mm. Right. Because if you don't sell out at the right time, meaning you would have had to sell out literally the week before the pandemic hit the United mm. States shores. Most people didn't. Right. And let's say that I sold out in mid-March where I was down 30 percent. Well, what happened by June? Most of the market had already recovered. Mm-hmm. So that's why a lot of people smarter than me, you know, analysts, um, historians will tell you, hey, don't don't sell. Just ride the bumps and bruises. The mutual funds are designed to take yeah. that type of beating. Because if you do, the timing's gonna be off. I mean, most yeah. most Americans, I would I would put it in a ninety percent category, are not gonna be able to sell and buy at the, at the right time. Which is actually kind of why where insider trading gets to be a an issue. Yeah, right. Sure. So people, some people know something's going to happen, so they buy and sell stocks at a large rate, and that's how they get the massive profit. Have you run into any issues like that? No, not necessarily. Um, you know, most most of our clients are going to be retail investors, not institutional. I mm-hmm. think that's really where you start to get into some some hairy things. Um, but you know, we. We've we've never really run into the insider trading piece, especially with mutual funds. It's yeah. not very, very never common. Yeah. So I'm back to the uh, original question, the strategy yep. on kind of uh, bridging yeah, sorry, that, we went bridging down the rabbit hole. Yeah. There. <laughs> no, I, dude, rabbit holes are my favorite. I love rabbit holes. <laughs> Depending on the rabbit hole, but yeah, for sure. Um, talk about how. So the older you are, yes. So we talked about the younger, right? Yes. You just you got the time to make up you know, any losses that you see, the older you are and the closer you get to that work optional lifestyle, you want to start scaling back some of that risk. 
And that can be achieved by moving out of less risky stocks. It could be achieved by moving some money into cash. It could be achieved by moving some money into bonds. There's multiple ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, the older you are, the, the norm is to start becoming more conservative with with your funds. Okay, so practically, you're let's say you're my uh, financial advisor. Um, you see my portfolio, um, twenty six. I have most of my or the majority, probably eighty percent of my uh, uh, portfolio in TEFQX. Mm-hmm. So I have a high risk right now. Mm-hmm. I've got mid cap, I've got small cap, I've got international. Um, as I get older, what's kind of the age range you're looking at to be able to minimize some of that risk and start shifting to more of a conservative approach? Yeah, really, <clears throat> that, there's different philosophies across the board, Okay, truthfully. Um, they say basically every 10 years, you should be scaling back at least a point of risk. So okay. like, right, so if I'm 20 years old on a scale of zero to 10, I'm taking a 10 risk. Then once I hit 30, I'm hitting nine. Once I hit 40, I'm taking eight. Once I hit 50, I'm taking seven. Okay. And f- a financial advisor will help you Make sure that that allocation is properly, you know, okay. allocated properly. Um, but that's normally the rule. Every ten years, I'm starting to scale back just a little bit. Okay, as we move forward. Um, so I get to the age where I'm, I'm finally retired. I'm, I've got a pretty good nest egg. How does that work? Whenever you start tapping into that funds, are you just living off the interest rate? Good question. Because you have to actually also adjust for chronic health diseases. Um, you have to adjust for inflation. For sure. Explain what those percentages are, how much you would need for more health problems, so on and so forth. As much as you can. Great question. You know, and this is this is pretty, this is a very common question that I get. So there's three phases of life. There's the accumulation phase, the distribution phase, and then the wealth transfer phase or the legacy phase, if you will. Right. Those are usually the three phases. I'm either in accumulation, distribution, or I'm giving my money away because I'm dead. <laughs> Hopefully before then. Fair is enough. The, yeah. Hopefully before then. And you guys actually do a whole lot of like wills and stuff. Too, oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah we're, we're that's part of that holistic mm-hmm. piece. You're kind um, of a one stop shop for everything we, financial, everything you have to do for uh, estate planning. Absolutely. Right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. We, we try to take that holistic approach with that. Um, so. Really, when you retire, Chris Hogan has a phenomenal book out there um, called Retire Inspired. It's fantastic, okay. right? Um, said Chris Hogan? Chris Hogan. Highly okay. recommend it All right. um, for people out there. Uh, but he talks about the magic number, right? How much do I need during retirement? Is it a million dollars? Is it $2 million? Yeah. Is it $3 million? We don't disagree with that. We think that's a decent way to look at it. Um, but we kind of reversed engineered it just a tad bit. And what I mean by that is, is really, if we're, if we're looking at a work optional lifestyle, we really just need to figure out how much do we need to live on during that work optional mm-hmm. lifestyle. Yeah. That's what we need to figure out. So the way you reverse engineer it is you say, okay, well, what is the safe percentage for me to pull off of my retirement accounts or my investment accounts and I never run out of money, mm-hmm. right? And people a lot smarter than me have come up with this number, Harvard, <laughs> Princeton, Yale guys, um, you know, but but ultimately that number again fluctuates. There's a lot of different information, but it's going to range between three and five percent annually that you can pull off of your retirement account. So let's just say we split the difference and we go four percent. So if I have a million dollars in my investment accounts, I should be able to safely pull forty grand a year off of that million dollars to live on, and I shouldn't. I mean, obviously, I have to throw in caveats, but I shouldn't run out of money. Okay. By the time so, of 95. Uh, during our scenario at $20 a month, um, again, that's bare minimum. That's 
that's twenty dollars a month. Like that's again, that's a cup of coffee. You get for cups sure, of cup, cup, cups of coffee. And typically, everybody's income goes up as they get more into the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, whether uh, mobility, if that's kind of the issue we're talking about earlier, but um, yeah, typically you're not like the very first job you take isn't what you're capping out at when you retire, right. money wise. Right. So twenty dollars a month that could easily triple or quadruple to where you're, you're 100 hundred, two hundred dollars a month to where you have five million easily mm-hmm. so in our in our very bare minimum scenario we're doing 20 dollars a month for our entire life that's 2.3 million four percent of 2.3 million is almost a hundred thousand right you got it yep that's exactly right so you're looking at a hundred thousand dollars at the age of 67 uh, i got it 65 65, 65 putting 20 dollars a month in at the age of 20 yep okay so super aggressive and, you, and that, yes. that is that is saying hey you've got to average you know 19 percent a year over the next <laughs> i don't know how i don't know how you know that's how sustainable okay, so that is margin but. of error let's okay, majority <laughs> of our life it's 18 percent, but we start sure. bringing it down um that'll let's let's shave off a million dollars okay now we only have four million dollars oh my goodness oh Heaven wow forbid. for sure that's a lot of money still you know and and this is this is something that millennials are gonna have to deal with um that a lot of previous generations did not have to, right? Previous generations had pensions. So what is a pension? So a pension is basically a guaranteed paycheck when I leave the company and retire. And how is it calculated that you know of? Well, I mean, all companies are different. They all have different calculations in the way that they they go into it, but usually it's based on a lifetime table, right? So if I retire at 65, the company's gonna go in there, they have actuaries that'll go in there and say, oh, well, you know, let's... (laughs) This guy's going to die at 84, right? And essentially, they're going to calculate how much they can pay you over that lifetime without it hurting their overall budget or their overall number. Um, so it's not necessarily guaranteed to be what you're making when you're working. Correct. That is correct. It's usually a percentage of and whatever. A lot of like local municipalities are actually like saying, see ya to the pensions, which is what was happening in Dallas. For sure. That came up in Fort Worth. Um, a lot of cities are just saying that we're not going to do pensions. A lot of companies are, not, are saying we're not going to do pensions anymore. Correct. So it's kind of, it's a high risk when we're looking at risk versus reward. It's kind of a high risk because yeah, you might have a pension right now, but who's to say 10 years from now? It's not there. It's not there. For sure. So then you've just lost millions of dollars. Absolutely. And and most of the big companies, you know, I would feel 100% confident going into, you know, teachers, teachers, <laughs> that are out there you know they they work for trs or the teacher's retirement system mm-hmm. that's the pension through the state um you know I'm, I'm confident with those but but ultimately i think everybody should have diversification mm-hmm. when even it comes in, to even that. in how you invest for sure pension mutual funds or exactly force or b yeah i mean do you want to i mean truthfully i mean millennials are non-trusting right <laughs> for the most yeah. part do you really want to rely on the government mm-hmm. to pay you a paycheck mm. for the rest of your life for me no yeah i, I want to i want to I, I want control of that yeah. so i think that's even more motivation for for millennials I, I i don't remember the statistics so don't quote me on this but i think it was like less than three percent of companies in the s p 500 still offer a pension hmm. so that is something that and that this really stopped after 2008 that's when every company started saying you know what we're these are just too expensive you know, we're just going to offer matching in a 401k or we're going to do X, Y, Z. And I think that that's a whole nother can of worms that millennials are going to have to deal with at some point. So I think that's even more motivation. If you want control and you want to take take ownership of, of your work optional lifestyle later down the road, then you need to have some diversification. Mm. 
Why do you think millennials are not trusting? I, truthfully, I, I think, um, well, I think, I think it's two things. I, you've got an economic problem and then you've got market problem mm-hmm. and then you've got financial advisor problem. I mean, we'll just get down to the nuts mm-hmm. and bolts. So from an economic standpoint, millennials had a bad I mean, if you think about it, what other generation other than, you know, going back to World War II or going back to the Great Depression, what other generation over that period of time has experienced what millennials have experienced? I mean, think about it. The tech crash, dot-com bubble. You had the um, September 11th terrorist attacks. You had Mm. 2008, which was the second worst recession in U.S. history. You've now seen COVID. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of different things that millennials have seen. So I think there's just a lack of... There's a lack of education, number one, but number two, there is a lack of distrust, you know, just in the overall system. Like, man, I I saw my parents lose a bunch of money during that time frame. I don't necessarily know if I want to go down that road. And then the second thing is, is I think that the, the, the financial advisor field, it, it gets a bad rap. And truthfully, there's been some bad apples in our industry. I completely acknowledge that. Um, but why, why does it get a bad rap? Well, you know, I, I think... There's a. I think people associate finance or the financial advisor role with a lot of greed, right? And I mean, there's been a lot of movies that have come out. Yeah. There's been a lot of, um, you know, Ponzi schemes that have hit the news or whatever it might be, and and that gives our industry a black eye. I mean, I, I think that we have to acknowledge that. Um, but what I want people to understand is that the industry is shifting. The average age for a financial advisor in the United States is 60 years old. Average mm. age wow. for a financial advisor. Wow. So I'm actually on the much younger end of the spectrum. You think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Much younger on, on the spectrum. But w- with that, with the younger generation, we're starting to see a shift of what we do. And we kind of hit on this mm-hmm. when we are first starting to talk. It's no longer about you just bringing me a hundred dollars and saying, all right, man, I can make you 20%. Let's do this. <laughs> it's not that anymore. That That's not our role. Our more, our role is now more holistic. It's more of a partnership with an individual or an individual and his family or her family. You know, we're trying to get them to where they need to go. And, and I think that that adds way more value than somebody just saying, "Hey, I can get I can get you ten percent a year. I can get you fifteen percent a year." Now, is that specific to your company, or is that uh, kind of as a whole in the industry I, the, I, taking the holistic approach? Yeah, that's that's where the industry is going. Okay, but not everybody is like that yet. Yeah, that was kind of the, one of the big reasons why when we first uh, had our conversation, I was on my way home from work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you called me. I was talking to you. You, you really brought up holistic economics, mm-hmm. and you're the first person I've actually heard as a in the financial realm talk about that. And that's kind of my that was my niche. I I, I look at big picture. I, sure. I can get lost in the weeds sometimes, but my my uh, strength is looking at that uh, big picture and seeing okay. You know, if I'm working 70 hours a week doing too much overtime, what am I not doing and what's that affecting my family? Okay. Where's my blind spot? Where's my blind spot? Exactly. For sure. And that's that's what we're trying to identify is it's no – again, it's no longer just here's some stocks for you. Here's some mutual funds for you. We're going to make you some money and call it a day. And you never hear from your financial advisor again. It's not that. And it, it's not going to be. And that's what we realize as an industry is – it's shifting and people need more comprehensive information that we can provide that they're not necessarily just going to be able to find on Google. Google, yeah. Um, so. <laughs> you know what I've seen a lot is I've seen a yeah. lot of people, their, their quality of life always seems to match their income or I guess their, 
what they uh, their bills always seem to match their income. They never mm-hmm. st- like if they get a huge raise or uh, a second job, um, they always seem to buy more things instead of investing those things. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's where uh, there, I know people who make three times more than me, and they're still struggling just as much as mm-hmm. I am on one income. For sure. So how do you kind of correlate that? How do you how would you kind of approach that situation? So, I mean, everybody's situation is different. There's yeah. never a one size fits no all. Statement. That's correct. <laughs> sure. And and truthfully, if you're working with somebody that just does a one size fits all or has a mold, you need to run the other way, in my mm, opinion. Interesting. Because that's not how this works. Okay. Everybody's situation is totally different. And, you know, I've I've worked with doctors that are making $700,000 a year and they're 46 years old. And guess how much they have in their retirement account? Nothing. Zero. Yeah. You know, and then I've worked with um, a 57 year old that worked for a telecommunication company has literally made $40,000 a year for his entire life. And he's 57 years old. They have no debt. And he's got a million three in his 401k Mm. with $40,000 a year. Which is kind of interesting because we talk about the difference between our parents' generation and now, you know, we have a lot, our generation has a lot more debt. Compared mm-hmm. to previous generations, because cost of school has gone up, like you said, cost of living has gone up, and mm-hmm. not uh, wages. So, how do you again? That's another huge thing to tackle. How do you tackle that? That's the headwind, right? I mean, that's a whole other issue with the, and that's that's kind of part of that job mobility issue, right? Is most millennials are coming out of school loaded with student loan debt, and mm-hmm. they can't get high paying jobs, yeah. you know, um, and that keeps them from being able to invest mm-hmm. truthfully. So that I totally agree with that. I mean, that's a whole nother issue. Do you guys, do you guys, uh, oops. do you guys have resources for somebody who say, okay, say I come in there, um, say, okay, I just got married. You know, we're looking at buying a house. These are, these are my holistic pictures and goals. I want to have for the next five years. I want to buy a house. I want to, um, invest. Uh, I want to have this much in savings. Do you guys help with every factor? Absolutely. Even that's, real estate? Yeah. That's that's part of the financial planning aspect. So just to kind of give you a broad picture on how that looks, it's software that we use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, this is part of being younger yeah. <laughs> and understanding yeah. the software yeah. approach. Not saying the older guys don't, but uh, you know, I, mean, yeah. I don't want to go there, but you know, <laughs> it's, um, but that's part of the software that we use. But essentially, yeah, I mean, it, the, the software, the financial planning software is very goals based. We can put in short term goals. We can put in midterm goals. We can put in long term goals. So you could say, you know what? We want to buy a car with cash for forty five thousand dollars in five years. Boom. That's a goal that we put into the software. And then you could come in and say, OK, well, you know, um, I've got a two year old daughter and I want to make sure that I can pay for her wedding in 16 years. It's a midterm goal. Right. Let's plug that in. Let's have a fifty thousand dollar wedding paid for. You know, at 18, that's a lot, but I'm just throwing a number out. Yeah, just throwing a number out. I'm pretty sure my mother-in-law actually made money on our wedding. That's what's kind of funny. Of all people, she actually like bought all this stuff for our wedding, made it super beautiful, then sold it all and actually made a profit. That's impressive. I know. That's impressive. I was very shocked. Yeah, that's that's (laughs) awesome. Um, And then a long-term goal, work optional lifestyle. Mm. Chris, I want to retire at 60 and I'd like to see $75,000 a year for that work optional lifestyle. Cool. Not a problem. We plug that into the system or the software. We tell the software what we're currently doing to hit those goals. Mm-hmm. You know, let's say that we've got $20,000 in a 401k and we're contributing $500 a month and we're getting a 3% match. And then we've got a couple of Roth IRAs on the side with 1200 bucks in there. In each of them, we're throwing $500 a month in those. We've got a $10,000 savings account. We've got XYZ. We plug all that into the system. 
And then we run what's called a Monte Carlo analysis. Okay. And what a Monte Carlo analysis does is it's basically um, it's analytics at its finest. Okay. There's real, this is a question I get all the time. Chris, how do you plan for COVID? There is absolutely no way to plan for a COVID-19, right? I mean, there's not. So what we have to do is use analytics, which is a Monte Carlo simulation. So what we do is we take basically the best 10 years the market's ever seen. And then we take the worst 10 years the, the market has ever seen. And then every market condition in between. And then we run this Monte Carlos analysis to see what percentage of success in those thousand different scenarios that we ran, what percentage of success. Um, so it's Dr. Strange. Essentially. So yeah. at the end of the Avengers movie, he's ran, he ran through like how many billion scenarios of what would actually work for the Avengers to win? That's it. Yes. The Monte Carlo scenario is running through every situation to win. And yes. only one or two has higher probability of success. Correct. So we'll usually come back and, you know, out of a thousand scenarios, if let's say that we had 98 or 980 that were successful, well, then we have a nine, 98% success of us being able to achieve those three goals, hmm. right? The car, the wedding, and the work optional lifestyle. But if it comes back at 50%, only 500 of our scenarios out of the thousand were successful, well, then we got a problem, mm. right? And what the software will do is then it will actually line out, boom, 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 what we need to do hmm. to get there. Wow. So it's not 100% foolproof, but in it's our- probabilities. Yes, that's exactly right. In our opinion, I think it's the best that we, we can do, so. Which I think a lot of people are wanting the 100% success rate for every situation in life, mm -hmm. whether it's medicine or finances. Um, it's really probabilities. What is the most probabilistically successful scenario? Exactly. And that's what people kind of lose. Well, and what's great, I don't know about you, but there's been many financial, I've been married for 15 years now. I mean, there's been many financial conversations that we've had over the years where it may not necessarily be an argument, but we're definitely opposed <laughs> on what we're doing, right? And yeah. what's great about the financial plan is, let's say that we had those three goals put in place, we're 98% successful, right? And then two years from now, I get a call, Caleb calls me, Caleb's like, hey man, uh, I wanna buy a boat <laughs> right now. And I'm gonna take $25,000 out of my plan, $25,000 of cash out of my plan, I'm gonna go pay cash for this boat. My cool Caleb. Midlife crisis. What yeah, what, whatever, man. <laughs> whatever. And I, I plug that $25,000 coming out of the plan. How does that affect our Monte Carlo now? Hmm. We were at 98%. Now we're at 82%. Hmm. Are you comfortable with that? You just lost essentially 16% positive probability. Is that, not, is, that, is that a decision you're willing to live with? And that's not even including compound interest. Like $25,000 of 19% times 40 years. <laughs> Oh my gosh. For sure. So um, you can see how powerful that is for our clients to make those educated decisions. Yeah. Um, divorce usually falls within, divorce issues fall within money issues. For sure. So have you actually seen where these, a couple comes to you or a guy comes to you or whoever and they say, hey, like we're struggling financially, we can't fix this. Uh, and then whenever you kind of gave them structure, have you seen that actually help there? Absolutely. Really? Yes. Yeah. And in, in fact, I mean, there, I'm thinking of one couple in particular, but I remember specifically, and this is kind of early on in my career, but I remember they were at odds. I mean, even in the room, I mean, it was, 
it was I, like Cut my there. jaw like dropped, <laughs> you know, onto the table multiple times. And I was like, oh, this is not good. But eventually we ended up getting them on a plan to where they were kind of giving and taking a little bit, you know, hmm. because they were seeing the numbers in black and white. And I feel like I don't know exactly what ended up happening with them, you know, because I was at the bank at the time. So um, but I do know when I was there and the follow ups that we had with them, you know, their their relationship seemed like it was a lot better just because money can cause a lot of stresses. And if you know exactly where you're going mm-hmm. and you're you're basically on the same path and you've got each other's back, I mean, it can change change some things for sure. Um, earlier, you talked about 401ks and 403bs. Just do a quick What's the difference? Yeah, so I call them the force. So there, so there's those are called employer sponsored plans. So usually when I work for a company, I'm going to have a four. If if they offer one, some companies don't have to, but if I work for a pretty large company, more than likely I'm going to have a four. So 401k, 403b, 457. The major difference is, is 401ks are going to be more for your corporate world. You know, so if I work for a bank or I work for a grocery store, if I work for, you know, a large chain of some something, mm-hmm. I'm probably going to have a 401k. A 403b, when I've seen a 403b, that's usually either in the teaching arena or that's going to be, um, can be in healthcare, but that's I've, what I had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I usually see it in the, the teaching though, in the, the ministry area. Why? Um, just because of the rules. That they have in there. There's specific roles that can kind of be flexible within hmm. those industries, those specific industries. The 457 is usually uh, geared more towards municipalities. So hmm. Fort Worth, Texas uses a 457 okay. plan. And are all the percentages like on returns fairly the same? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> you know, this is something to to definitely take a look in. You know, there's there's some plans that I have looked at and they're not from a return standpoint, they're not good. They're, they're just not good. Um, then I've looked at some 401ks and I'm like, wow, this one's really good. And, and usually there's different ways that they can do it, but most of the time, um, somebody's got to elect those investment options inside of that plan. So depending on how aggressive, you know, those individuals that are electing those funds in there, mm-hmm. you know, or how conservative they are is really going to put their own stamp on that, that plan. So I've seen some, not all of that are created equal. Some are good. Yeah. Some not so good. Huh? What have you seen, uh, financially in the holidays happen? Like there's all, cause everybody's money is really tight in the holidays cause everybody's buying presents. Um, when some of your clients come to you and say, Hey, these, these are some of the things I want to do. Um, but I, I can't, what do I do? Cause it seems like, again, f- back to the issues in finances, people are, are not one to spend or they're spending too much and they actually get in sure. debt just for Christmas. For sure. So we actually, um, we've advised a few clients to open up what's called a Christmas account where they just go down to their local bank and they literally have X amount of dollars come out of their check every mm. single month or biweekly or whenever they get paid. And that's just swept into their Christmas account. And it just goes in there and it sits in there for them all year. So they're basically saving up for Christmas throughout the year. Okay. It's usually been the most effective way. I would like to do a scenario again. Um, I want to do it for two different people. So a couple coming to you with two different incomes. Let's say each couple has $45,000 is what they make. Okay. Or we'll just round it $50,000 each. So you have a combined income of $100,000. Um, each couple, each, each person has a bachelor's degree with $30,000 in debt. So their total $60,000 on debt. Mm-hmm. Um, they're 
27. They just heard my podcast. So they're like, Hey, I got to get going. They come to you. <laughs> um, the 27, they come to you say, sure. okay, I have $60,000 in debt. Um, we have a $350,000 house. Uh, we're pretty much maxing our mortgage payments. Uh, they're not in the best financial state, but they have these goals. Okay. So imagine that I'm the couple and I come to you and say, Hey, um, what do I do? Yeah. Go. <laughs> Yeah. Good, good question. I mean, and this goes back to that. Nobody's the same, yeah. right? Everybody. Cause obviously a $30,000 debt is going to be way less of an impact on the couple that's making a hundred thousand mm-hmm. than it is on the couple that's making 40 each, or 50,000. So it's $60,000, 30,000 each. Oh, okay. Okay. So $60,000 mm-hmm. for the other couple. So, so each so, person has an undergrad and they have their school. Okay. So, I mean, there's going to be different impacts on people. Um, but our first step with that from a financial planning aspect is to take a look at their budget. That's going to be our first step is, Hey, let's take a look at what you've got coming in and let's take a look at what you got coming out. And believe it or not, I mean, the, the folks that are making pretty good money, but seem to not have the extra discretionary income, Mm -hmm. there's usually something in their budget that we can cut out Mm -hmm. and there can be multiple things. Subscriptions are huge. People don't realize that there's 15 subscriptions sometimes knocking out $200 your bank account every month. We So what we do, and sometimes clients hate this. I mean, truthfully, I mean, they don't want to do this, but it's a requirement. I mean, we want to make sure we can't start investing until we know it's sustainable, mm. right? I mean, if, if we start throwing 500 bucks a month into a Roth IRA and then two months down the road, you're like, man, I can't do this anymore. I mean, yeah. what good is that? It seems like people want to jump immediately to investing. It's almost like building a house. Like you don't, you don't first put the roof on the house. You first start with the foundation, yeah, the pillars, the exactly. That's it. So budgeting and kind of getting your, your uh, finances squared away is that foundation. That's yes. That's going to be our first step when it comes to that. And it, we want people to be debt free. We really do. We, we subscribe to that philosophy. You know, we, we want people to be debt free, but it's not always going to be advantageous for people to pay off all their debt, including their house before they start investing. And that's Bob's my next question. Yeah. I mean, if let's say that it takes me 20 years to pay off my house and I'm mm-hmm. 32 years old or 33 years old, I'm, that means I'm not investing until I'm 50 something. Okay. You know? So again, apply to the scenario. Okay. You see, yeah. I, I have $60,000, Chris. What, mm-hmm. what do I do? I want to start investing within the next couple of years. So what do I do? Like I, I, what, I don't want to lose all, all this yeah, money. No, let's get you there. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's get you there. Let's figure out a, a game plan where we may be able to get your budget under control, where we, f- we can find exactly how much discretionary income you have to be investing. And then is there a happy median? We've got debt, right? We've got debt on the books. And is there a way that we can get some of that debt paid off with us still investing at least something, whether it's $20, whether Mm -hmm. it's $50, we're going to attack that debt first, truthfully. But if we can still invest as well At at the same time, let's do it. Would you ever, uh, if it's just a small couple like that, would you ever advise selling that big, big, big fancy house? And downsizing? We've definitely, we've had that conversation. I mean, it it really comes down to the priorities with the financial planning. I mean, what's more important, you know, is it, is it going to be, Hey, I want to work optional lifestyle at 50, you know, and I'm 30 years old. Well, the only way that we're really going to be able to do that under current circumstances is sell our house, take that equity, pay off our debt, and then use all of our, basically all of our income and start investing it now. Okay. So imagine again, Chris, I feel trapped. I've got, I've all these mm -hmm. huge decisions that I just, I don't know what to do. I've got so much, so many financial numbers. I I don't know what to do. Starts with a budget. So start with a budget. That's it. I I promise you uh, 99.9999% of times when I have that conversation that happens monthly, weekly, daily, 
that's usually a budget issue. Is it because people like structure? Yes. A lot of things are just kind of abstract. Yeah. Things just disappear. That's it. So people want structure. Yeah. They, they really don't know what they have going in and what they've got going mm-hmm. out. And it's amazing what can happen if you take an hour and just sit down and go through your bank statements and just start writing down what you've spent on a monthly basis. Because what if you can get that under control or you have an idea of what you're spending on a monthly basis, then you can kind of compartmentalizing, if you will, mm-hmm. some of the expenses and then you can say, okay, look, I, I do have a thousand bucks a month that I can start investing, or I do have a thousand bucks a month that I can start throwing towards debt. And it, once you have a plan, all of that um, fog, if you will, goes away. You, know, okay. you start to have some clarity. You can say, okay, I've got a plan. You know, either I'm going to attack my debt, or I'm going to invest, or I'm going to do a combination of both. It ultimately, from a financial advisor standpoint it's always good to have a third pair of eyes take a look at it or a second mm. pair of eyes. Um, that way you can have somebody sit down with you and help guide you and, and get a game plan in, in order. Okay, so a fast forward five years. Yep. I'm now 32. Um, Chris, I, man, we, we've knocked out half, right? We've knocked out $30,000 worth of debt. Um, I'm now 32. I want to have, we've invested a little bit. We now have $5,000 in our mutual funds. Mm-hmm. Um, you've put me in a kind of a high risk category now mm-hmm. so we can kind of gain some of what we've lost. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be... Work optional, making sixty thousand a year at the age of fifty-five. How mm-hmm. do I get there? That's what the, the the software will tell us. Okay, exactly. I mean, we we basically then solve for X. That's essentially what we're doing. So and that's we're a saying, very easy situation. Yeah. At that point, I mean, all we got to do is just plug in some numbers and say, hey, if you want that, we can make it happen. We need a average return of seven percent a year, and you know, we need to be putting back five hundred bucks a month. Or we need to be putting back nine hundred bucks a month, or whatever it might be. But then all we've got to do is solve for X. How much money um, at thirty-two? Because a, a lot of our uh, people I know are are between my age and like thirty-five, so they're in between there. If I want to, and again, you don't you you don't have to put it into the computer if you don't want to. But I am kind of curious what this what the actual numbers are. Um, Let's say if I have disposable of after all this budgeting, I have four hundred dollars a month I can put back um, between the ages of thirty-two and fifty-five. So, so that's twenty-three years. Yeah. So we work got option fifty-five. Are we still going super? Let's super do aggressive, or what are we doing? Let's here? do aggressive at the beginning for the first ten years. Okay. And then and then, golly, I just shut this off. And we've got five thousand dollars in our IRA mm-hmm. currently. Yep. Okay. What's that going to look like? All right, so let me do some calculations because it's got to be two separate ones here. Cool. So it's super duper aggressive. And how much are we putting in per month, you said? 500? Uh, 400. 400, okay. So at the end of 10 years, so we start with 5,000. Um, we have 10 years to save. And let's go super duper aggressive. So and we're able to achieve the 19%, 400 bucks a month. We would have an estimated 158, 958 okay. after 10 years. So then we still got another 13 years to go at this point. With more conservative approach. With more conservative. Are you looking at like 13%, 12%? Let's call it 10. 10%. We'll go 10. Okay. Yeah, we'll go 10. So at the end of the 23 years, your estimated total would be 672,758. Okay. What if I pushed that same amount at 10% all the way to full retirement age? 65. 
So that would be <laughs> that extra 10 years makes a huge difference. So we're looking at 1.8, dollars huh. after 23 years. And that, uh, at 4%, that's still around or 33 years. I'm that's sorry. about $50,000. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah, wow. Be exact. Of income that you get at retirement. Yeah. I mean, at 5%, you're looking at 91,000 of, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that was a little off. Okay. Yeah. And that is a very easy scenario. I mean, we're talking 400 bucks a month mm. with $5,000 starting at the and, age of 32. And you're making 100,000 a year. For sure. With two incomes. Now, returns can make a difference. You know, so yeah. that's, it's very important that you keep that in mind, you know. Um, yeah. Every, every article that I've ever researched, it's always, it's based on historical data. So this is not future. This is correct. It's a promise that we can make. <laughs> I do throw the asterisks in there. Yes. That know? is a huge deal. It is a, it is a big deal with returns. So. But math, it's just the numbers. Like we it. know that like the one I'm, I'm in, TEFQX has, you said a 13 or 40%. 15 year return? Uh, I think it was 15. 15% 15 year yeah. return. So even right now, like if I chose for the next 15 years, I'm get, I'll probably get a 15 mm-hmm. year return. And that's still, that's still good. That's very good. Absolutely. And benchmark at 7%, 8% with SP 500. Um, for what I understand, that's kind of like uh, that you're pretty much not going to lose stuff for the most part because that is a very conservative. Very low risk. Well, it depends, you know, and that's that's something that a financial advisor can help people, you know, with. Obviously, it's because the S and P you got to remember was down thirty eight percent in forty five days. Yeah, you know, so can can some people can they stomach that? You know, is that something? Because there, man, I have met thirty year olds, twenty five year olds that are like, man, I can't. Like, if I saw my money go down by thirty eight percent, I don't know what I'd do. You know, and and that's part of lack of education. And we try to educate them. Mm -hmm. And if they're still like, I can't do that, then we've got to be ultra conservative. And I mean, you can get down to making three or four percent a year. Mm -hmm. And how how do you get paid? How do all the financial advisors get paid? So it's all different. So there's different ways in a fiduciary capacity. It's usually going to be the advisory approach where we we basically um, charge a flat percentage on the assets that are managed by our firm. So let's just say you've got $100,000 in um, under management with us. I think the average in the United States is about a 1% fee, you know, so that means that you're paying the investment firm about a thousand dollars a year. Off Which that is nothing. Grand. Well, if they make you, <laughs> you know, if they make you 19,000 for the year, I mean, that's definitely worth the trade off, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but then the other aspect of that, and this is where we've really had to add that value is the financial planning. You know, if the firms are doing it right, they're including that financial planning mm-hmm. aspect as well within that fee structure. Hmm. So, hmm. so interesting. I love it all. <laughs> um, was there anything else that kind of you had on your mind that you would love to share things that you're passionate about that, uh, even our generation doesn't know that we didn't really cover? Yeah, no, I would, I would say, you know, if, if there's anybody out there, you know, that's listening that needs education, you know, go, go to DaveRamsey.com. You know, I'm giving him a free plug here. Yeah. I'm not associated with him, by the way. I do need to throw that out there. But the, the philosophy is amazing. You know, it's, it's something that's so simple. They don't teach you in textbooks, by the way. But it's, it's so simple. It can help people that are feeling underwater and drowning, you know, due to their financial situation. It can make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, y'all got to remember, when I, I talked about this earlier in the segment, 
I, I was 21 years old, 22 years old and had three kids. My wife and I lived in a two bedroom apartment and didn't have two, two pennies to rub together. And that's my Dave story. I mm-hmm. found him during that time frame, and it helped me get on path, you know, and, and Dave obviously does have the smart investor program, um, where he can at least introduce you to some smart investor pros that if they take the time and they're doing it right, doesn't matter how much you have, how in debt you are, they'll help you get on the right path and get you to where you need to be. Yeah. And, and finding somebody that you trust is kind of big, you know, it is. Um, I, I had, when I, when I initially, uh, put in for the smart investor program, I got a bunch of different calls, mm-hmm. a bunch of different calls. Um, and I, I talked to like one or two of them and it was just, things weren't clicking. I don't know why until I talked to you and I was like, Oh, this guy kind of gets where I'm coming from too. Um, so I felt like I was trusting already, uh, just on that very first phone call. And then you say, Hey, let's just meet, let's just talk, talk about what's going on. Yeah. Um, and that was free. Like I, I paid you a penny. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, um, for sure. So just getting in the door and even just talking to them, whether on the phone or face to face, uh, feel out like it's not just a, uh, for me at least, it's not just a, Walmart greeter type of relationship. For sure. It's like, I, I want to know the dude. I want to know what he's about. Personal I want to know his level. character. Yeah. For me. Yeah. And, and let me ask you this. I'll, I'll, I'll throw this back at you. I mean, what did you see when you were talking to those individual smart investors and interviewing a financial advisor to go talk to? What did you see differently during that interview process? Um, You called me. Okay. The other ones, it was either their associate or their secretary or, uh, them just trying to get an appointment. So I felt hmm. kind of, I felt it was kind of like a, like a, desar- a doctor's appointment. For sure. Like the secretary calls, Hey, we got to check you up. Okay. All right, move on. <laughs> you know, you have a, li- I feel like, uh, initially there's a list of phone calls that the secretary had to make. Oh, uh, it's just, an- Caleb's just another dude. You're just yeah. another guy trying to get my money. Um, uh, whenever you called, you were, you're just down to earth, you know, yeah. you're real. Um, and then well, especially well, when I, that. when I got into the office and I talked to you and what's your, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Alan. Alan. That's Alan. right. Um, and I was emailing Alan initially too. So shout out to Alan. <laughs> um, I honestly just felt like you guys cared a lot more and knowing For where sure. you came from, um, knowing, uh, kind of your, your theology behind or, or theory behind finance on how you're truly like making money that is, we all have to do it. We all got to make sure. money no matter what we do. I've got five kids, man. I've yeah, got to feed provide. them somehow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it wasn't just about making money. So I, I felt like you weren't going to just pull the wool over my eyes. And I knew I was talking, I came in like knew what I was talking about, knew kind of what numbers you, you were going to say, I understood them. So it helped me understand a little bit more about what, um, kind of how you see finance for sure. So that was kind of big for me. And that's, that's in alignment with what we've heard from a lot of clients that we've, we've onboarded, especially over the past three or four years, as they've said a, a big difference. And, and I would throw this out to anybody that is across the United States or international for that reason. You know, you, when you're working with somebody, you need to make sure they have a heart of a teacher that they want to take the time and educate you. You know, if you walk into somebody's office and they're like, Oh, here's a portfolio. It's done 15% a year. I'm going to make you this money. And they don't go in the nuts and bolts. They don't want to take the time to educate you on how that solution works, how the product works, how the, how it's going to fit in your overall financial picture. There's a problem. You know, you need to make sure that like you said, you can really get to the heart of the individual and what are they trying to do? Cause so. I felt like I was kind of interviewing you just like you were interviewing me for sure. Um, cause we spent an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, a, a good portion of the morning that mm-hmm. day. And we just sat and talked. Yeah. And again, I haven't paid you a, a penny and I, I that was kind of huge for me. That was kind of yeah. huge because, 
Um, I, I took out time out of your day. And I know you think it, it, it is an investment, you know, spending time with your clients is an for investment, sure. whether it pays or not. Um, but that was kind of a difference for me. You know, you weren't just saying, okay, here, give me 50 bucks for the consult. Yeah. You know, it was like, hey, I'm going to spend some time investing in Caleb, uh, talk about his financial future and see what we can do from there. For sure. And that's, so that was kind of huge. Yeah. That's just part of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I do want to help people. I so do want to see them succeed. Here's the plug for you. What's your, <laughs> what's your company name again? Stewardship Wealth Management. Website is stewardship-wealth.com. Okay. Stewardship-wealth.com. Uh, we can, I can be reached personally at my email six, eight, two. I'm yeah, I'm sorry. That's my phone. number. I'll give that to you here in a second. Email is Chris C H R I S dot Albertson, A L B E R T S O N at LPL.com. Our phone number at the office is six, eight, two, three, six, seven, two, five, four, eight. Okay. If you guys, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in a spot where you just need help financially, you want to retire or you want to have a work optional lifestyle at the age of 50 or 60, whatever it is, or 45, you guys got to come check out Chris because uh, their firm, uh, it's awesome. Uh, Chris is a great guy of character. Um, I don't say that about a whole lot of people. I'm not going to shout out from the rooftops, but um, he's got some character in that. You want somebody with character to run your finances and help you with your finances. So Chris, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you for having me. Love what you're doing here. Thanks, man. man. It's awesome. (laughs) I'm excited for you.